You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Welcome. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab them. Turn to John chapter 1125. Good morning. My name is Mike M. I am also one of the home group's ministers, along with Aubrey, who just read our text. Um, Before I get started with the message... I just wanted to take some time to express my thanks to this church. It was about a year ago that I got to preach one of our Advent messages on peace. And in that message, I shared that my wife and I had recently, at that time, celebrated our 12th year anniversary. And I shared that um, and how for 12 years we had suffered with infertility. 12 long and lonely quiet years. Many of you reached out and uh, prayed for us. Many of you reached out and let us know that you're continually praying for us. Uh, We felt so loved and comforted by all of you. Thank you so much. Uh, I wanted to report that recently Kathy and I again celebrated uh, our anniversary. This time, number 13, we're still married. (laughs) Um, So that's the same. But one thing that's different is that we also celebrated uh, the third month of life of our baby daughter, Talitha. (laughs) Um, Thank you all so much for uh, your prayers and your love. You you did not uh, need to pray for us, but you did. And God did not need to answer in the way that he did, and yet he delighted to do so. And it it has been extremely humbling. It has been extremely overwhelming. So grateful. To God be the glory. Let's get started. We have been in a series called, uh, titled, In Christ, right? Being a Christian means being united to Jesus. And being united to Jesus means that the things that are true about Christ are true about us. We've talked about how Union with Christ means that he is sovereign over our identities. The world does not get to tell us who we are. We don't even get to say who we are. We are who God says we are. But union with Christ also means that God is sovereign not only just over our identities, but also over our stories. Being united with Christ means that our stories are written into Christ's story, and Christ's story is written into ours. So here's a truth to embrace. To be in Christ is to have Jesus sovereignly rewrite our stories. Now, if you know anything about Jesus' story, you know that the central, most important part of his story is that he was crucified that he died, he was buried, and three days later, he rose from the dead. And because Jesus' death and resurrection is a central point of his story, the New Testament is filled with language about being united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. That that is the way that our stories interact. Three verses for you on this. Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. In Galatians 2, 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's not I 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If you've been in church any, uh, for any amount of time, you probably have heard these verses before. But my question to you is, how does this work? Like, what does this mean? This morning, I want to explore part of what it means to have our stories rewritten by being united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. I'm going to do that by taking you through four famous stories from the Gospels. If you've been in church any amount of time, you probably know all four of these stories. And even if you haven't been in church in a long time, you probably know a couple of these anyway. These are the four stories. Number one, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. Number two, Jesus heals a blind man. Number three, Jesus raises a little girl from the dead. And number four, Jesus is crucified between two criminals. All right, let's start with number one, the paralyzed man. This is found in John chapter five. In the fifth chapter of John's gospel, he recounts the story of a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years. The story finds him lying on his side near a pool. And he thinks, if I can just get into that pool, I can be healed. But he can never seem to make it in the nick of time. And Jesus meets him and he asks him a single question. He says, do you want to be healed? And the man seems to misunderstand what Jesus is asking because he says, uh, well, I've been trying to get into this water and no one will help me. I don't have enough friends and people keep beating me to the water. That's not what Jesus was asking. And instead of arguing with the man, Jesus then simply gives him a single command. He says, get up, take up your mat and walk. And the text says, and at once the man was healed, he took up his bed and he walked. You guys know the story, right? Okay, I wanna ask you this. Have you ever thought about like, what is happening in this story? What exactly is Jesus healing in this story? All right, let's put a pin in that. We'll come back to it in a second. Second story is found four chapters later in the, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, Jesus meets a blind man, okay? Throughout the Gospels, Jesus meets and heals multiple blind men. But this one, we have a little added detail. It says he was blind from birth. And in this story, Jesus spits on the ground, makes little balls of mud and squishes it onto his eyes. And then he says, go and wash your face. And when the man washes his face, he can suddenly see. The man starts walking around. He's looking at stuff, you know, enjoying his new vision. And his neighbors who saw him sitting on the ground begging begin to have a little debate with each other because they they're, they're just can't believe it. Some of them are like, is that, is that the guy that's always hanging around here asking for money? And some of them are like, yeah, that's definitely him. And others are like, no, 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 there's no way that's him. Are you for real right now? Come on. And they start arguing. Again, let me ask you, what do you think Jesus healed in this man? Like, it makes sense if you say, well, obviously Jesus healed his eyes. Like, you know, he's got magic spit and he makes magic mud and he squishes on his eyes and I guess melts away the cataracts or whatever, you know? And like Jesus healed his eyes. That's why he put the stuff on his eyes, right? That's a natural thing to, to assume, but that cannot be the answer. It's impossible that that's what he did. Let me explain. As I mentioned earlier, my daughter Talitha has just uh, gotten to three months and she is just now starting to recognize faces. 
And so when she sees me, she starts smiling. When I say peekaboo, she starts laughing. It's the most wonderful thing I've ever heard, right? It's really great, okay? But she wasn't doing that a couple of months ago. A couple of months ago, she could tell when the light came on, but she didn't know when you were walking in front of her. She wasn't able to focus on anything, right? Why? Her eyes were working, retinas, lenses, corneas, irises, optic nerve, her brain, everything. All the hardware was there. Why can she not see, right? What's changed? The thing that's changed is that her brain has been developing. The first six months are a crucial time for brain development. In 1981, the Nobel Prize was given for a series of uh, experiments that I'm not sure they're super ethical today. Basically, they had these little kittens and they would sew one of their eyes shut. And uh, so the kittens could always see one out of one eye. And then after six months to a year, they would unsew the eye and then see and then measure the brain and see like, can they see out of that eye? And they found that, no, like once, once if you haven't developed that from birth, that part of the brain atrophies and the other eye sort of takes over. They did things like raise kittens and monkeys in total darkness for a full year. And then when they exposed them to light, they were just, they couldn't really see. They could sort of see some light, but it never fully developed because the brain wasn't ready to receive the signals that were coming in, sort them, understand like that's a circle, that's a square, that's a face, right? In fact, um, I've been reading that babies can't really even distinguish color until about four months, right? These things are being calibrated and growing and developing over time. The brain is receiving this, uh, this information and is able to sort it out. Not only that, the brain sends signals to the eye to close and to open, to the lenses, to focus. All of these things are necessary for people to see. This all happens in the first six months, roughly. This man has been born blind. He has never had any of those things wired in his brain. If Jesus merely heals his retinas or his corneas or his lenses or replaces his eyes, right? Now, we don't have the ability to grow or 3D print new eyes, but even if we did that and you popped him in, he would not be able to see because his brain has never developed the ability to see. It has languished. He's an adult now, his whole life, he's never seen. It's not enough for Jesus to heal his eyes. He has to do something very strange. The same thing with the man who is paralyzed, right? What, what is Jesus healing in this man when he says, get up? So he's paralyzed. Maybe he's got a spinal cord you know, injury. So, okay, Jesus heals his spinal cord. His spinal cord is working. Can he get up? No, he's been lying on the ground for 38 years. There's no muscles in his legs. His ligaments are dead. His tendons are, right? So, okay, okay, fine. Let's say he gives him new legs. Can he, now can he walk? No. Anyone in here, if you're in the medical profession, if you've ever done like physical therapy, you know, this guy's got months, if not years of physical therapy. He's it's the same thing. He's got he's to practice sending messages to his legs and back. He's got to feel where they are. He's going to be wobbling around like a newborn calf for a while. There's no way this guy just pops up and picks up his mat and he's like, see you later and just walks away, right? How can he do that? Jesus is healing more than their, just their bodies. What he's doing is he's healing them so that it's as if the man was never paralyzed. It's as if the other man was never blind. It's like he goes back in time and changes the story at the source and rips out death from their story. I, I want you to see that these miracles of Jesus are much bigger than what we give him credit for. We'll never duplicate them with medical technology because Let's say we could rewire a brain. How can we rewire a brain without obliterating the person? Jesus totally changes both of their brains. 
but they don't have different personalities. They don't change all of a sudden. They're the same person. Who can do that but God? Jesus is not just rebuilding them. He's restoring them to what they would have been had death never been woven into their lives at all. Completely rewriting and restoring their stories. He even incorporates their suffering into their joy, into his glory. This brings us to the third story, the story of Talitha, Mark chapter 5. As Aubrey read, Jesus is on his way to heal this little girl. And on the way there, some messengers come and say, you don't need to come, she's already dead. And Jesus says something ridiculous. He says, he's not dead. She's sleeping. And they all laugh at him. Here's my question to you. Who's right? Is Jesus right? Are they right? There's a big difference between dead and sleeping, right? One of the things that's wonderful is when my baby finally goes to sleep. Thank you, right? And there's a whole other sermon on the beauty of that. Like she's actually the most beautiful when she's doing nothing. She's just lying there resting, that God loves us when we are not useful. When we just rest in him, he loves us. He looks at you and says, I love you. You don't have to do anything. That's another sermon. Sometimes I'm looking at her and she's just lying there. Kathy and I are like, she's so cute. But then that, that feeling of adoration, the feeling of fondness suddenly turns into panic. Wait, is she breathing? Like, I'm a new parent, you know, I don't know. So, and I lean forward, and I put my ear, and she's so little, I can barely hear anything, and I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And then she makes a little noise, and then I find, oh, now I'm breathing. <sighs> okay. What is that feeling? She didn't change. She's got her eyes closed. She's not moving. And for one second, she was beautiful and cute, and the other second, it was scary. There's a huge gulf between death and sleep, Right? This is important because Jesus is, when he says she's sleeping, he's not playing a word game. It's not like Star Wars when Luke Skywalker asks Obi-Wan, what happened to my father? He's like, Darth Vader killed your father. And then later he's like, wait, Darth Vader is my father. He's like, well, I mean, from my perspective, you know, if you look at it a certain kind of way, like, is that what Jesus is saying? Like, well, I mean, sleeping, you know, right? It's a poetic term. No, no, that's not what he's doing. He means it. But who's right? You see, people in the first century, they were well acquainted with child mortality. They know what a dead child looks like. It's not that they're wrong and Jesus is right. They're right, but Jesus is Lord. That's the difference. And to demonstrate this, he goes, little girl, get up. Talitha, kumi. And it says she immediately got up. And she goes, I'm hungry. And she eats. The blind man sees as if he were never blind. The paralyzed man walks as if he was never paralyzed. And this girl gets up and eats food as if she was never dead. She was only sleeping. He changes her story. She was never dead. He gets to say so because he's the author of the story. In each of these stories, like I said, Jesus is unraveling, unweaving the effects of death, carefully plucking them out of every story, restoring them as if death never had existed. Only Jesus has the power to say this and make it so. This is why Jesus, before he raises Lazarus in the passage that we read today, says in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who, believe, who lives and believes in me shall never die. You know, when I was a younger Christian, this, this verse really bothered me because the sentence doesn't make a lot of sense to me. How can you say that a believer will never die? I know plenty of believers who've died. My grandmother is a titan of faith to me. She's the one who taught me to love the Bible, how to read it, how to understand it. She taught me how to worship God in the midst of sorrow. She lived a hard life, walked, went through the Korean War, escaped communist soldiers, and raised a family in bitter hardship. And she rejoiced every day. She would tell me all the time, rejoice, just rejoice in the Lord. I say again, rejoice. She was always saying that. I'm like, grandmother, how can you say that? I say, Jesus lives. And a few years ago, she got sick and she was in a home and she was in hospice. And I, I got to watch this titan of faith withering away in front of my very eyes, being stolen away from me and my family. And to my shame, I didn't visit her enough to my eternal regret, you know, because I didn't know what to say at the time. I didn't know how to comfort her. My mother's older sister, Esther, my Aunt Esther, one of my earliest memories of my childhood, I was maybe three or four, I don't remember. I grew up in Hawaii, and I remember her praying over me in a little church in Hawaii, tears streaming down her face. And at three years old, I knew crying means you're in trouble or you hurt, and so she didn't look like she was in trouble or hurt, and praying means something good has happened, like we're about to eat, you know? And I was like, what is going on? Why are you crying and praying? And I could hear what she was saying. She was praying for me that God would use me, that God would bless me, that God would keep me, that God would protect me. And I was like, well, that doesn't sound like a sad thing. Why is she crying? And she, we were there for like half an hour. I got bored, I fell asleep, woke up again. That was one of my earliest memories. And recently she's begun to exhibit the signs of Alzheimer's. And this beautiful woman who's been a leader in her church for decades is beginning to wither her dignity being stolen from her. How can you say that believers don't die? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the passage of resurrection, he says, I'm dying every day. Tim Keller explained this in a beautiful way. He said he has this recurring nightmare that his wife has died. And it's super realistic. And he wakes up, cold sweat. He's in a panic because the dream is so real. And let me just quote what he says. He says, let me tell you something really weird. I almost like having that nightmare now. You know why? Because that first minute after you wake up is so unbelievably great to wake up and say, oh my gosh, it was only a bad dream. And everything bad that I was living through has come untrue. She was never dead at all. He says that's what the resurrection is. It's not that he wakes up and someone gives him something to make him feel a little better, like, hey, here's a new wife. Stop crying, right? He doesn't, no. Jesus does not replace, he restores. 
In the resurrection, he restores everything that's been stolen from us. Even the evil that has been done to us, Jesus incorporates it for his glory and for his joy. That thing that Tim Keller says, all the bad things I was living through has come untrue. Um, You'll find this in the second to last page of the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a quote, actually, not from the Bible, but from the third book of The Lord of the Rings. Samwise wakes up and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. What is everything sad going to come untrue? What has happened to the world? This is in the book aptly titled The Return of the King. Being united with Christ means that we have a life that is imperishable. It is hidden with Christ in God. One of my favorite passages about this is found near the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 20. It is at the end of all of time, Jesus has overthrown his enemies and he sits on a great white throne to judge all the earth. And it says that from his presence, the earth and the sky flew away, but there was no place for them to hide. And then it says a few verses later, the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades gave up the death Uh, gave up the dead who were in them. You see, throughout the Bible, these three symbols, the sea and death and Hades, called the grave, are um, these symbols of the unconquerable, untamable, unquenchable devourers of humanity. They're relentless. And yet, at the resurrection, Jesus does something. He... He treats them like little kids. He picks them up by the scruff of their neck like shoplifters who's caught in the act and he makes them turn out their pockets and everything they're stolen falls out. They don't get to keep anyone who belongs to Jesus. He says, I have given them eternal life and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then to switch metaphors, Jesus like a pro wrestler gets up on the top rope and throws death and Hades, and abuse, and cancer, and miscarriage, and all of those evil things from the top rope into the lake of fire to be destroyed and never seen ever again. This is the resurrection. But here's the the question. How do we get this? How do we know this will happen? What secures this? This brings me to the fourth and last story, Jesus crucified between two criminals. This is found in Luke chapter 23. It tells us that when Jesus was crucified, he was uh, on that day, actually three people were being crucified. Jesus in the middle, to his left, there was a criminal, to his right, another criminal. One of the criminals begins to yell at Jesus, begins to curse Jesus. He says things like, if you're really the Messiah, then save yourself and save us and other things that the Bible doesn't, is too modest to repeat. But then the other criminal turns to to the first criminal and he says, we are being crucified because of our crimes, but this man's done nothing wrong. And he turns to Christ and he says, one of the most dense theological sentences in the Bible, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Let me unpack this sentence. 
He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This means, Jesus, I think you are who you said you are. You are the king. This is a ridiculous statement because think about where they are. At the time uh, in the first century, there were so many false messiahs. Some people number over 100 of these messiahs and rebellions that are rising up, right? They get a band of rabbis together. Let's overthrow Rome. God's on our side. And then they get caught and they get crucified. That's literally what's happening right now. And he's looking at this man who's being nailed to the cross like every other Messiah that came before. He says, no, 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 no. You're still the Messiah. I believe that you are who you say you are. What faith? And then he says, you will come into your kingdom. So not only you are who you say you are, you will do what you said you will do. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God. He says, you will come into your kingdom. That will happen. He didn't say, that's a shame about that, all that kingdom stuff. That would have been nice. That would have been nice. That was a nice dream. He says, you will come into your kingdom. I believe that you are who you say you are and that you will do what you said you will do. I believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But then he says something else. He says, Jesus, remember me. That's significant because dead people don't remember anything. What he's saying is, I'm going to die, but you will not die. I might stop remembering, but I want you to keep remembering. Jesus, you are eternal. This is a different version of what Simon Peter said. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus' response to him is truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, in this story, there are two criminals who are crucified near Jesus, but only one criminal was crucified with Jesus. Only one criminal would be able to say what Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. To help you understand this, let me paraphrase a theological movie called Braveheart. In that movie, there's a quote. It says, every man dies, but not every man truly lives. To paraphrase that, everyone is crucified, but not everyone is crucified with Christ. These are the two choices. Like, I want a third choice. Maybe could I not be crucified? Death is coming. If you are not, if you're, if you're in this room, I think all of you have a story of something that you're hoping for, wishing for, dreading, whatever that is. There's something that is troubling your heart. And if you don't have it, you just haven't lived long enough. This world is broken. We live in a condition of sin and misery. This is why Jesus doesn't just send us a book or, or some tips or a fortune cookie. He has to come and die. What it means to be crucified with Christ is that like the thief on the cross, we say that we believe that Jesus is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. That he is the son of God, the Lord of Lords, the savior of the world, the author of life and of our stories. And that he will do all that he said. He will exchange our death for his life, our sin for his righteousness, our shame for his beauty, our suffering for his joy. This is why before he raises Lazarus, he, he, he tells Lazarus' sister, Martha, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He asks her one question. 
Do you believe this? You see, the lie to renounce is that our stories need to be good enough to earn resurrection. He doesn't ask, are you worthy of this? What will you show me that I should do this for you? Can you accomplish this? He doesn't ask these things. And the second lie to renounce is that our stories are too late to change. This man is on the cross. That is pretty late for you to have a heart change. Like maybe I should try something different. You know, it's a little late. And Jesus says, do you believe this? If you believe in me, that I am the resurrection, that I am the life, then you are crucified with me. And I will take your death and I will give you my life. If you are united with me in a death like mine, you will certainly be raised with me. My, my earnest plea, if you are here today, and you are struggling and suffering through things, don't be crucified alone. Jesus is the author of our salvation. He's the author of our faith. He's the author of life. He gets to write our stories. He gets to rewrite our stories. Of everyone who's united to him. And this isn't just pie in the sky, like one day it'll get better. Um, the staff just went on staff retreat. And uh, one of the things that was really wonderful there is we got to hear Michael Snetzer share an extended version of his testimony. And if you've never heard that, I urge you, go to recovery. You need to hear this. It's, it's an amazing story. But it's a story that has um, addiction and betrayal and divorce, estrangement. It's filled with sadness and tragedy. And then he meets Jesus. It's not that he found Jesus, it's that Jesus found him. And the thing that's amazing is that after he shared this story to the whole staff, I didn't hear anyone go up to him and say, man, that's a shame about all that stuff. You know, I don't know what you're doing here. You know? Or, I don't know how you can worship God. Like, how could he let that stuff happen to you, man? Gosh. No one said, um, that's, that's a real shame. I don't, I don't get it. Everyone was like, that is beautiful. That is amazing. Praise God. Because by meeting the resurrected Lord, his story is being changed in reverse. The meaning of all the things, even his failures, are being transformed by the grace of God to beautify and glorify the Father and transform our brother Snetzer into one of the most amazing and wise men you will ever meet at our church. This is because Jesus is doing more than just authoring our stories like a writer writing a novel. He does something peculiar. He writes himself into the novel. This is like Shakespeare becoming a character in one of his plays. Jesus incarnates himself and comes into our story. This is why being in Christ means that what is true about him, it becomes true about us. He takes on our stories, our sin, our suffering, and he writes them onto his body. 
into his story. And he writes his victorious, undying resurrection story onto ours. This is why it says he became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Everything stolen from his people will be restored and all of our stories will be rewritten by the author of life. In the resurrection, Jesus restores our broken bodies, as I've said. The blind and the lame. I won't need these glasses anymore. My knees won't click anymore. My rotator cuff will be healed. All that stuff. No more wheelchairs. No more dentures, right? No more cholesterol meds, right? All those things are gone. But there's something better than that. Revelation 21.4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things that passed away. In the resurrection, Jesus restores more than our broken bodies. He restores our broken hearts. In the end, Jesus has the right as a crucified and risen Lord to declare over us, it will be as if you were never paralyzed, as if you were never blind, as if you had never died, as if you had never been abused, as if you had never lost your loved one. Wake up. The morning has dawned. I've swallowed up death in victory. I'm making all things new. No one enters into the kingdom of God with their scars unhealed. That is the promise of the resurrection. But that sounds great. But what do we do while we're waiting? Why did... Jesus allow this man to be paralyzed for 38 years before healing him? Why let this man go his whole life being blind? Why let the little girl die in the first place? I asked these questions last year during my Advent message about my own life. I said, why won't, can God heal my wife of her seizures? Yes. Why won't he do it? Can God heal me of my migraines? Yes. Why won't he do it? Can God give us a child? Why hasn't he done it? It's been 12 long years. Why has he not done it if he can? And my answer is the same as I told you last year. My best biblical answer is I don't know. I don't know why, but the Bible tells us what, uh, what the answer is not. The answer is not that God has left us alone. The answer is not that God does not care, that he's on vacation, that um, he's sadistically watching us run around like rats in a maze, that we're some sort of puppets or playthings, that God is removed, that God is an dispassionate observer. That is not true. You know how I know that? You know how I know that God isn't punishing us? Because for those who are in Christ, I said, no, no one enters the kingdom with scars. But that's not actually true. There's one person. There's one person who after a resurrection is covered in scars. Jesus reserves eternal scarring for himself. On his body are the marks that count everything that he had to pay to love us. On his body are eternally written the payment for the grace that he pours out on us. They are the evidence that Jesus loves us, that he is for us, 
that he's not just watching. When the rest of us, all we can do is cry out or shake our fist, Jesus got up off the throne and took off his crown and emptied himself and took on the form of a slave and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did that for you, beloved. And that is why you know, you know that we are not left alone. In the kingdom, we will never have died. But Jesus, even in Revelation, they say he is the lamb who was slain. He's called slain. He reserves the wounds for himself. And by his wounds, we are healed. Because of this, being resurrected is not properly, actually, like life after death. It's rather receiving Jesus' undying, unbreakable, eternal life. This is why Jesus can say truthfully, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Why he can say, why are you crying? She's not dead, she's just sleeping. Where this broken and sinful world has woven death deep into our hearts, deep into our lives, causing anguish and sorrow. For those in Christ, God is patiently and skillfully, gently unraveling, unweaving those dark tendrils of death out of our lives, out of our stories. When we don't know Jesus' plans, we look at Jesus' character. We look at his faithfulness. And we wait with both joy and sorrow. C.S. Lewis put it much more beautifully than I ever could, so I'll just read his words. This is from The Great Divorce. He says, son, he said, you cannot in your present state understand eternity. This is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss could ever make up for this, not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they'll say, let me have but this and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread backwards and back into their past and contaminate even the pleasure of the sin. Both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. And the bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness And that is why the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, there are so many things that we want answers to. Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done, like the song says. God, I just pray that you would give us faith to hold on when this life is so cruel. Thank you for answering prayer, but there are so many other things that are troubling each of our hearts, or even now. I feel greedy for asking for more, but Lord, I just pray for healing. For all those who are seeking that in this room, I pray for restoration of marriages. I pray for all of these things that are troubling and shaking us to our hearts, but Lord, you remain unshaken, God. And Lord, that I pray that our trembling, fearful, weak stories would be 
hidden in your powerful, resurrected, unshakable, unchanging story, God, that you would call us more than conquerors. But we thank you that it is not about us earning the right to be resurrected, but it's because your story is so good, it swallows up ours. Oh, Lord, that we might cling on just a little more. Give us faith day by day, manna day after day, oh God, that we might believe and live. In Jesus' name.